Welcome everyone, good to see you today. So I was uh, greeted with a really fun surprise uh, when I came down this morning. So I came down into my basement and uh, all your faces or many of your faces were here to greet me. Here's a picture of what I found. So one of the fun things about this morning is I get to actually teach and preach to you and not just the camera. So thank you for joining me. It's fun to have you here this morning. Now, as we come to the end of May, here we are sort of hovering in this odd new way of being. People walking around in masks, waiting in lines at grocery stores, standing six feet apart, drive-by celebrations, Zoom gatherings. I know for me, and I think for many of you, there's this sort of question in my brain of like, when is this going to be over? I know for me, I was hoping, I was really, really hoping that in May, right, things would change and we'd be back to gathering or at least gathering in small groups. And man, I was just dis so disappointed when the shelter in place got extended another month. It really hit me hard. And as I was praying about our reality, I felt led to Jeremiah 29. Now, Jeremiah 29 is a letter that Jeremiah sends to Jewish or Hebrew exiles in Babylon. Now, before we dive into it, I want to get into some history. But before that, I just want to say this. This is going to be our last sermon in our Rooted series. Uh, and we're going to actually take a break from all of our topical messages. And we're just going to teach through the book of Ruth uh, in the month of June, starting actually next week on the 31st, which I'm super excited about. Get back into working through a book. Uh, and Ruth is just a profound story. Uh, so looking forward to that. All right, so Jeremiah 29. So a little historical context. The year is most likely uh, 597, 597 BC. The Babylonian Empire has come into the southern kingdom and conquered it, right? So there's two kingdoms in Israel. There's a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was destroyed 125 years earlier by the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. Now the Babylonians who conquered the Assyrians are coming into the southern kingdom and they conquer it. Now the Babylonians, they have uh, ways to deal with difficult people. And uh, the truth is, right, the Hebrew people at that time have a reputation for being a little unruly. So they, they have three techniques. One technique is you kick the people out and send them away. Uh, the problem with that is the people almost always end up coming back angry. Uh, the other technique, right, is you basically oppress or you subjugate people. And the problem with that is people pop up in riots and frustration, right? You see this in the first century with Rome. So the Babylonians have learned actually the best way to deal with a tricky or unruly nation is actually try and assimilate them. And what you do, what they learned you do is you take the best and the brightest from their nation, from their city, from their place, right? You take the best and the brightest, you bring them back to Babylon, you educate them in Babylonian ways. And then usually by the next generation, right, they've learned all about Babylonian culture. They're converted to the Babylonian way. Then they go back to their homeland and they bring basically the best of Babylon back to their people. And then they're welcomed more and it actually works better uh, from the empire's perspective. Now, why all this about Babylonian ruling techniques? Well, this is exactly what they do 
with the Hebrew people in 597. Right? They take the best and the brightest, and they bring them back to Babylon. So they divide the southern kingdom into two groups, people that will stay and people that will go. And based on historical evidence and Jeremiah 29, we know they actually take right, the elders, the priests, the prophets, the officials, the craftsmen, and the medical, metal workers, basically the most skilled, the best leaders from the southern kingdom, and they bring them back to uh, Babylon in exile. We know this because Jeremiah's letter is written to them. Now, one other piece of historical information that's really important as we begin is to know that in Jeremiah 29, where he sends his letter to the exiles, the exiles are kind of under the impression that maybe the Babylonian Empire is uh, in a tough spot, that maybe it'll crumble one of these days. And they're sort of anxiously waiting for news that they'll get to return home. So what happens is you have these prophets popping up in their camp in exile saying, hey guys, it's going to be way shorter than you think, right? Babylon's going to fall and we're going to go home. Hananiah is one of these prophets. Jeremiah 28, 2-3, Hananiah says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, right? I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. So he's saying, right, two years, guys, it's quick, you know. Jeremiah's like, no, 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 it's going to be 70 years. Right, two years and 70 years are a pretty big difference. Two years, maybe they can wait it out, right? They can sort of hunker down. 70 years, uh, that's a generation, right? So their kids might be able to go back, but maybe not them. So it's to these educated exiles hoping for a quick return that Jeremiah writes his letter via God in Jeremiah 29. This is how it begins. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters, wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, and they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, but do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now a few things to notice here. First, right, Jeremiah tells them, Guys, you got to put away your camping gear. Right? This isn't going to be a short stay. Right? I know you guys want to go home. Everyone wants to go home from exile. But Jeremiah knows this isn't going to happen quickly. Right? So he tells them, you guys, you got to build houses. you got to plant some gardens. And on one level, this is super practical advice. Like, make a home, start living. On another level, there's deeper spiritual ramifications here. So in the law, right, in Deuteronomy 25, the Israelites, whenever they're supposed to build a house, and they've done this, you know, for generations in the promised land. These are laws given to the Israelites as they build houses in the promised land. When they build the house, they're supposed to dedicate it to God. And now they're supposed to do that in exile? Right, when they planted a garden, they're supposed to then take the first fruits of that garden and offer it to God as thanksgiving. And now they're supposed to do that in exile? Right? In many ways, this is unimaginable to the Hebrew people. Right? Their, their worship 
is so connected to the land, and now they're supposed to do this in another place? Now, for us, I, I, we don't totally get this connection between land and worship. But I think we get this idea of having to do something unimaginable. If you had asked me, right, four months ago, let's say, whether Wellspring in four months would be doing all online worship, everything would be online, we'd have Zoom gatherings, I would have been like, no way. Like, I have a high value. We have a high value for embodied worship, for being together, for community, right? Laying on hands and praying for people. But we can't do that now, right? What was unimaginable has taken place in many ways, right? And like the exiles who are having to wrestle, what does it look like to worship God in an unimaginable environment? We are trying to figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus, to worship him, to be a community of people in an unimaginable circumstance where we're having to now do everything online via Zoom and trying to do Sunday worship right through a screen. We're trying to work out these changes. I think another similarity is actually on the timeline. So on one level, right, the exiles wanted two years. They wanted a quick return. Jeremiah's like, no, 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 70 years. Now for us, we think 70 years and we think, well, that is a long time. But I want you to imagine for a second, 70 years from the Babylonian perspective. So from the perspective of Babylon, they think they are creating a 1,000-year kingdom that is going to dominate the world for 1,000 years. So exile for them, sure, maybe Israel will be there for 70 years, maybe 300 years. They're imagining a much longer period of time. So 70 years is actually somewhere in the middle. If you think about it, the Babylonian Empire actually only stands for 73 years. They, ca they capture the fall of Nineveh, the, 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 sorry, the time between the fall of Nineveh and the fall of Babylon is only 73 years. So God's timing, in a way, is neither the hoped-for short time of the two years of the false prophets, nor the really long-scale time of the thousand-year kingdom of Babylon. God's actual 70 years is in between. Now, obviously, I don't. I don't know how long we're going to shelter in place. No one does. And honestly, like if it was up to me, we would be meeting tomorrow. COVID-19 would be gone. But clearly I am not that powerful or influential. But as I read Jeremiah 29, I don't know. I do feel like God is inviting me to be more open. Sort of imagine you're in exile, you're in the camp, you're waiting for the pall of Babylon, and each morning you get up and you're waiting for that horse or that rider or that new information to come, and each day you wake up with some anxiety and excitement, and each day you have disappointment. Imagine being in that for 70 years, what that would do to you. I mean, I know for me, even just over the last few months, I have had to sort of go, I've gone through that myself of like hoping for change, right? Hoping for the end, and yet, it doesn't come as quickly as I want. And I sense God inviting me. I sense God inviting us to set aside some of our timetables and trust in Him. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to be prepared. We are. Actually, next week, we're going to start live streaming services at the church with a little more of a worship team. Uh, with, you know, I'm going to be speaking at the church. And what we're trying to do 
is be ready. We're going to have sort of be ready for a hybrid environment after we're able to gather where some people can stay at home if they're more comfortable with that and some people can gather. We're trying to build for that reality because we want to be prepared. But we want to be trusting in God and not our own timetables. Now secondly, right, God doesn't just say put away your camping gear through the prophet Jeremiah. He also says to seek the shalom of the place that you are. Now there's a number of important things to say here. First is to say this word welfare is actually the word shalom in Hebrew. Now sometimes that's translated as peace, but in English, right, peace can simply mean like the absence of conflict. But that's not shalom, certainly that's a part of it. Peace can also mean that inner thing you feel when you feel inner peace. And maybe that's a part of it too, but it's not the whole of it. Shalom is like the full thriving and flourishing of not just an individual, but a whole community. And not just spiritually, but socially, economically, physically. Shalom is a comprehensive, holistic, flourishing and thriving. And God says to the Israelites, seek the flourishing of Babylon. Now this idea of seeking peace uh, is actually like makes sense, right? They've, they've been reading and praying Psalm 122 probably for most of their lives. And that's about seeking the shalom of the city of Jerusalem, right? And their compatriots. Let me just read you two lines. This is verses eight and nine. For my brothers and companions sake, I say, shalom be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord I God, I will seek your good. Right? They know about seeking the shalom of their people, but now God is asking them to do that for people that have oppressed them, killed some of them, put them in this, taken them from their home and their homeland, and now he's saying, seek the welfare of these people. Tim Keller writes, The Babylonian leaders' hands were dripping with the blood of their kindred. The city was filled with idols, filled with false gods, and God has the audacity to say, I want you to seek the prosperity and peace of the whole city. I want you to pray for the city, love it, root for it, not against it. Now practically, I think this likely begins by adjusting some of their relational posture, right? So they're not just gossiping and sort of getting mad and talking bad about the Babylonians. Right? They're actually dealing with some of their bitterness, their resentment, and their judgment. I think one of the reasons that uh, Jeremiah and God put in this word about praying for the Babylonians is actually to address this relational posture. Have you ever really been mad at someone or frustrated with someone? Uh, and then you go to pray. And as you're in God's presence, you experience a sense of grace sense of forgiveness and you realize in that moment man God has been so good to me God has been so gracious to me and then your bitterness and resentment starts to melt a little bit because you're not so defended you're a little more aware of God's grace and kindness to you and then slowly and gradually you start to actually pray for that person or that circumstance, right? And your heart has softened in the presence of God, right? In prayer, you then turn towards their benefit, their shalom, 
they're flourishing. God invites the exiles to pray that they might be in the presence of God and their heart might be changed. Seeking the shalom, though, also means making the best use of their professional skills to build up the economy, build up the political systems of the Babylonians, right? To leverage their skill sets to build up the full flourishing, right? Not just spiritually, economically, physically, socially, politically. Babylonian evidence uh, and documents suggest that the Jewish exiles were also camped along the Kebar Canal. Now, this area was an area that was war-torn by the Assyrians and the Babylonians as they fought it out, right, as their empires fought it out. The Babylonians won, but their land was really messed up. So actually, it's really interesting. So as now the Israelites are building homes and planting gardens, they're actually investing in the land of the Babylonians, making it better, seeking the shalom, the full flourishing of that society. Now, quite clearly, like we are not the Hebrew people. We are not in anywhere near their extreme circumstance, right? We're not taking into exile. We have not had compatriots or friends, right, killed by a warring army. We don't have as obvious a political enemy. And yet, it only takes a minute, right, to read through the news to see that there's all kinds of political divisions happening around COVID-19. I think we need to be a little bit careful here because I think it is actually very easy for us to allow our anger and our frustration at our leaders and politically to actually dominate our conversations and our posture. So much so that we are no longer known as a people who are seeking the shalom and the full flourishing, right, of our city, our region, our state, our nation, and our world. Right? What does it look like for us to be a people, right, that are praying for our leaders? Whether we think they are good or bad, competent or incompetent. Right? The New Testament talks about this all the time, that we should be praying for our leaders, I think part of this is that God wants us to be a people that want the full flourishing of our city, our state, our nation, right, in our world. But you have people that have disproportionate influence, our leaders, and he wants us as a people not to just gossip about them and be mad at them, but pray for them. That we might be a people who seek shalom, even in seasons like this. One of the joys, actually of being a pastor in this season is getting to see some of the amazing ways that you guys are seeking the shalom of this area. I know one guy, one family, who uh, noticed that a business was going to be going out of business. And this business employed a lot of people. And so what he and his family have decided to do is they're going to buy that business so that those people don't lose their jobs. And his skill set is sort of really well suited for this business. So he believes that if he gives himself, invest in this place, he will not only save their jobs, but he may even create new jobs. And I just think this is a powerful example of seeking the shalom of our area, of our place, right? In a season, right, when it feels like, man, all maybe I want to do is hunker down and protect my own. This person is taking the risk to actually invest his money, invest their money to seek the shalom of others. 
I know another family who uh, in this season, you know, they're not vacationing as much, not eating out as much. So they actually have more money. And they decided, you know, rather than just save it, what they have done is they've bought gift cards and gas cards and they've given them to the church and the church has been able to distribute it to people that are maybe struggling more. This is a powerful example of rather than just thinking of themselves, they're thinking of the welfare of the community. I know another person who literally spends hours every day praying for you and me, for our community, and for our nation. And when I talk to this person, I just am unbelievably inspired by her dedication and faithfulness to your flourishing and to mine. She's setting aside hours every day so that we flourish. I just find being in the presence of these people and hearing these stories so inspiring. And I wonder what that looks like for you and for me to seek the full flourishing and thriving of our towns and our region and our state and our nation and our world. What does it look like for you? What are the skills and resources that God has given you that you can leverage on behalf of others? Let us seek the welfare the shalom, the full flourishing of our space. Now, after this section, in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah talks about the false prophets, which we've talked about, and then he jumps in verse 10 and writes this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, Plans for your welfare and not for evil. To give you a hope and a future. Give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you in to exile. All right, so Jeremiah begins by reminding them, right, that their timeline and God's timeline are not the same, right? It's not two years, it's 70. But then the first thing that Jeremiah says is that God is going to return to fulfill his promise. They're not going to be in exile forever. That one day he's going to bring them home to the promised land. Just because they're settling down in Babylon, attempting to be faithful in a foreign land, doesn't mean they will be there forever. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned them. It doesn't mean that they won't get home with each other, with their people, and with God back in their home country. In verse 11, God says that he has plans for them. Notice he says this, plans for their welfare. This is the word shalom. Right? Just as the Israelites are invited to seek the shalom of bad Babylon, God is seeking their shalom. God is seeking their full flourishing. And God is saying, hey guys, guess what? I'm seeking your full flourishing. I have a good hope and a good future and a good plan for you. And because of this, right, because God hasn't abandoned them and he's coming for them, he also challenges them not to assimilate. Remember, the Babylonians are trying to get these exiles to assimilate. They become like the culture around them. 
They're in basically the New York City of the ancient world, top of the line culture, top of the line uh, education, you know, the best talks and food and whatever. And God is saying, don't get sucked into the promise of the Babylonian empire. I am coming for you. I have a promise. I have a future and it's better than Babylon's. So God says, right, through the prophet, I, prophet Jeremiah, seek me with all of your heart. Now, heart in Hebrew, levev, is not simply uh, the emotion center, but it's also the will, the inner person, the mind. It's kind of like all of who you are. So in the midst of exile, as you're giving yourself on behalf of that people in this place, make sure to seek me with all of your heart. Do not assimilate. And I think this has a few implications for us. First, right, this idea of being faithful in exile is basically copied and pasted from Jeremiah 29 into the New Testament. Right? Peter writes in 1 Peter, he writes to uh, the church in Cappadocia in modern day Turkey, and he's like, hey, you guys are exiles. Same language. Right? Paul says, not the word exile, but he says that uh, in Philippians 3, that our citizenship is in heaven. Even though we're members of a nation, our true citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Paul also writes that we are ambassadors. Now, ambassadors are a pretty fascinating concept. Right? So the idea of ambassadors, you live in a, one country, but you're from another. So you're fluent in that country's language, their culture, you get it. But you know, and you never forget for a second, that you represent another country. And just as the exiles are supposed to love the Babylonians and yet seek God in the midst of it, so we are supposed to be a part of this culture. We're supposed to love it and be a part of it, and yet in the midst of it, not drift into becoming like the culture, but seeking God with all of our heart. Why? Because God has not forgotten us. Right? God has a plan for the church. Hopes and shalom. He wants the church's full flourishing. Right? And in the end, God is going to come. He's going to return. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make all things new. But for now, right, we are called to be his faithful presence in this time. In the shadow of COVID-19, we are supposed to be God's faithful presence. Not to assimilate, but to seek his face. And I just wonder, maybe you did an inventory this week. Like what, what people, places, and things are the most tempting for you? What are the things that are most likely going to lure you away from seeking Jesus' face? And what does it look like for you to say no to those things? To even use like biblical language to repent, to say, God, I'm not going to give in to these temptations. I'm going to seek you. Maybe this is a good time, right, to confess to someone that you know in this body, another believer, and say, hey, I'm really tempted by these things. Could you pray for me? Right, if we want to be a living witness that seeks the presence of God, we have to be aware of the potential drift of this season. One of the trickinesses of this whole season is everything is kind of upended, Right? Our relational connections are different. We're not gathering in the same ways. And so there's a potential for drift that we need to be aware of. 
Second, I think if we want to be God's faithful presence and not get lost, we have to recognize we cannot do it on our own strength. Right? We need to seek Him with all of our heart. Right? He is the one who removes fear. He is the one who gives us contentment. He is the one who takes our selfishness and molds it into something that can serve others. So if we want to seek the shalom of the city, we need to first seek the face of God. So while there might be temptations out there to assimilate into the culture, at the same time, right, what does it look like for you and me to seek God's face? You know, as I sort of am just in this season with you, I don't know, it's really real, right? Like, I, I feel like so much of life, my structure, my schedule that I had before is thrown off. And in that environment, it's kind of hard to know, like, how do I seek God? I feel like I, even in the last week or so, I've been in this sort of renewed sense of what does it look like for me in a disciplined and practical, rhythmed way to seek the face of God? You know, what does that look like for you? Do you know? Because again, I think this is a season, if we're not careful, where we will drift. What does it look like for you to be rooted, not drifting? What does it look like for you to root in the presence of God? Root at the feet of Jesus. What does it look like for you to seek His face? Because church, God is the only one who knows how long this is going to last. God is the one who knows what this community needs and how we can love it. God is the one who is able to give us vision, right, when we're bored of Zoom meetings and wondering about online church. right? God is the one who will bring us on course when we start to drift. The prophet Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles and he says, Hey guys, be faithful where you are. I think that's our invitation too regardless of timetables, regardless of how long it takes. God is saying to us, church, wellspring, love me and love your neighbor. What does that look like for us in this season? I'm going to take a moment to pray. I just invite you, what is the Spirit's invitation to you? Not what do you think is best. What is God's invitation to you? I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you. The Holy Spirit would speak to you. Maybe he'd give you a picture or a verse or a friend to call uh, that he would speak to you in this moment. God, just as you wrote words, living words to exiles, the exiles, in 597, God, I pray that you would speak living words to us in 2020 as we experience this odd exile moment in the shadow of COVID-19. God, I want promises to come to us this day and in this moment. Jesus, what is your living word as we sit on our couch or in our chair with our families or by ourselves? God, what do you have to say to us? God, if you're, church, if you're open, I invite you to turn your hands open as a sign and a symbol to God, saying, God, I want, I want to hear your word. Another way you can respond with your body if you feel like you have drifted. And whether it's right now or sometime today, I invite you to actually just get down on all fours and put your head on the ground in a posture of repentance, saying to God, God, I've drifted, help me. 
And if in this moment you even feel like, man, you're not even sure where you're at with Jesus, I invite you to call someone that you know. Reach out to someone if you are struggling. Like, man, I feel like I've drifted so much. I need help. Call someone. Text someone. Holy Spirit, please inspire and speak to us. God, we need you to speak. We, your people, are listening for your life-giving word, to hear your word that brings us full flourishing in the shalom of your kingdom. Amen.